The Circular. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Circulars. Today, I'm talking to Marta Heisel Wisniewska, an educator from AAP Cornell, but also architect and researcher. Her work has been published in several publications. One of these is Building from Waste, which will be featured in this episode. Her other books include Addis Abeba, A Manifesto in African Progress, and City in Your Hands. We're going to start the talk off with a short introduction by Marta herself, before we dive deeper into her career so far, and the places she has worked in, and how they have changed her perception of circularity. My name is Marta heisel Wisniewska. I'm a lecturer at the um, AAP Cornell at the Department of Architecture in the, in the United States. And I'm also a director of Regenerative Architecture Lab, also here at Cornell. Great. So walk me a bit through kind of like your, your journey to where you are right now, your studies and a bit basically how, how you came to Cornell. How much time do you have? Um, so when you talk about journey it's actually um, in my case a a very physical journey where I traveled from country to country from continent to continent and this kind of awareness and fascination really grew and developed Um, and it actually started with my very first job shortly after graduation in 2011 where my first official job was as an educator so I've been um, in academia ever since And I was hired as a lecturer at the EIABC, Ethiopian Institute of Architecture, Building Construction and City Development in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, quite a different context than um, university where I graduated from in Szczecin in Poland. And I've been leading a design studio, of course, looking in a very, very different context than than what we are used to in uh, developing part of the world. And Addis Abeba is a really fascinating place. It's one of the fastest developing and growing urbanities in the world, which means obviously a lot of materials are are needed. Uh, This booming construction site is is still very visible 10, 11 years afterwards, uh, later. And this was a huge topic over there because Ethiopia wasn't able to produce this, this amount of materials to meet the demand, which means that most of the materials were being transported from China, mostly concrete, and uh, steel for, you know, very typical reinforced concrete construction, uh, steel coming from from India. And then that put a lot of pressure, mostly monetary pressure on the country. And while as an educator, we don't really put a huge, or don't have a really big impact on the government and what is happening in the construction industry, especially as a very young architect, I started looking at how, um, what kind of other potential resources are there and maybe not really introduced into this kind of uh, field. And I have noticed that the approach to the resource is completely different in developing regions of the world in comparison to others, where everything doesn't end its life after the first use, but everything is being pulled out from trash or is not even going into the landfill, but is through different processes as being reintroduced as something else, or it's just being uh, remodeled or repaired and then can be used again and again and again. And this, this was on a, uh, on a actually really large scale in comparison to what we know. 
there's this whole area in Addis Abeba called Minale Shtera where trash is being collected in one place, distributed according to the raw material or its future use. And there's the whole network of people who, um, who are working towards uh, bringing this resources into, uh, into the market yet again. Uh, that's something that I also looked at in my recent options studio at Cornell. But I think even more importantly, um, there's, there's no talk about demolition. I mean, there are huge areas, uh, informal areas, inform informal settlements that are of very poor quality where officially the demolition is happening. But the thing is that as, as in states or in Europe, most of the materials go directly into the landfill because there's no market or no workforce to start uh, segregating the material, try to work on them. In Ethiopia um, and other African countries, that's the, the working model. Um, and a lot of people are very much involved um, in this field, which means that every single item from the, from the um, demolished constructions, starting with stones and bricks up to doors and doorknobs, is being sold yet again. So this kind of patchwork way of, of uh, building or allowing the materials to recirculate in the construction is definitely very visible and very strong over there. So with this kind of knowledge, after a year of working in, in Ethiopia, and you can inter, uh, inter, uh, interrupt me anytime you want, if you want to add something. No, I, I just thought it was uh, really fascinating the way you describe basically how you catalog a, a building and then uh, take out the components and then reuse them. And actually, one of the other guests from the podcast is doing some research on this as well. He's an educator here at EPFL, Corentin Fivet. And one of the episodes is about basically what, what you just already described. So I think the, the mentality is shifting, but it's really interesting to see that it's already happening in Addis Abeba. Yes, and the fact that we can learn from developing countries. Yes, definitely. We don't have this kind of respect or, or approach or, or notion in our education that we don't necessarily look at very rich in the educational institutions that have money that can actually do proper research, but we can look at sim simple users and simple workers that can make a difference. And here, it's really funny that you're talking about cataloging material elements, because obviously it's not done in a computer and the software, but they're, they're, it's so well organized. There's one person that is selling the, the gates, there's one person that is selling glass one other person is collecting all the furniture the other one is collecting bricks so when you're building your house and you want to really tap into the existing resources of the with the history from the past you know exactly to ho to whom you can go or to which area of the market you would which part of the market you would visit so if we continue with the journey i would take you to singapore because that was uh, that was the next step uh, and that's where I've been working for, for almost three years. I've been working at uh, Future Cities Laboratory, which is a satellite of Etihad Zurich. And, and that was the place which was amazing for research. And I kind of dived in and looked at exactly what fascinated me and inspired me in Addis, meaning the, the materials that derive from waste. And it turned out to be quite a lot of them, definitely much less in 2012, 13 than what we have right now. And that time in Singapore, well, it was amazing in many respects, but the, the baby of that time was the Building from Waste book. The book Mada is referencing here is Building from Waste, which she wrote together with Dirk Hebel and Felix Heisel. 
The concept behind it was to provide a practical look into materials and products which use waste as a renewable resource. The products are organized along manufacturing processes, densified, reconfigured, transformed, designed, or cultivated materials. In the book itself, they are organized based on their use in construction. If they're load-bearing, self-supporting, insulating, waterproofing, or finishing products. If you're interested in checking out the book, you can click the link provided in the episode description. Now, let's get back to the talk. So that 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 was a kind of launching pad for the rest of my career, which uh, which continues. But a lot of the products over here are very much synthetic. Now, obviously, a lot of waste or a lot of products that end up in the trash are derived or come from plastic or have some kind of plastic components. And as much as they are really malleable and easy to, to uh, process and, and have really good uh, performative abilities, later on, obviously, when the research continues and, and uh, you know, this understanding of, of the really bad, very negative impact of synthetic materials on the environment, I kind of started to turn towards the regenerative materials, the ones that um, are bio-contributive, if you will, the ones that not only do not have negative impact on the environment and the users, because I also talk about the health impact on the users and workers, but even can contribute positively to the environment, because a lot of those natural materials are able to, to um, encapsulate being toxins or uh, CO2 or, um, I don't know, smog from the air, for example. And this research, was that was happening in Singapore or is this happening now? No, no. I, in the meantime, I moved to Zurich where I, where I was working at ETH and then kind of continued in Germany for a while, in Karlsruhe, but in, um, uh, not at, at the university anymore. And then I'm here at, in the USA since two and a half years. So being here kind of pushed me towards looking at the, at the bio, uh, bio-based materials and composites. In uh, Karlsruhe, you were working in an office, an uh, architecture office, or what was it? I was actually uh, still working for ETH, um, but on a publication. Ah, okay. So it's still academia, but, but from, from a distance. Hmm. Well, I mean, you brought up a lot of great topics that we, we could definitely dive back into. I, I was just wondering, so you, you were, you finished your studies in Poland and then you moved to Addis Abeba. How, how does this connection happen? Well, funny story. I was never thinking about Africa as a continent and the next place or first place of my work, but I was surrounded by people or basically, um, inspired by my partner who was really fascinated with African context, especially Ethiopia, because he just visited it and he had some connections and he really wanted to do something fun and crazy, not a typical, let's go to the office in Berlin and, and uh, work on architecture, draw in Archicad on an, or in Rhino, but let's do something that is, is not very typical and still see the world. And he connected to our future boss, Dirk Hebel, who was also teaching at ETH. And that was the time when Professor Hebel was a, uh, a director at the EABC and said, oh, why don't you guys come to Addis and teach here? So from being taught, two weeks later, we were teaching. 
the new generation of architects in Addis, which, Addis Abeba, which um, was quite a big jump. And it was very challenging, obviously, because you don't want to, you feel responsible for all these young minds who are just a few years younger than you. Um, but um, yeah, it was also an important lesson not to teach them top down and put the education of uh, from Germany or Poland um, into the context that is so much different than others, but to learn from them and, and balance everything, give a little bit of input from, from our education, but also um, most of all learn what is important, what is valuable, what is what should be cherished, and what is what are the strong suits of the place you're in, which I think should be applied all the time. That's why it's so important to, to change the countries of your education, go from at least from Germany to Switzerland, and then maybe even further away and, and hear the voices that are um, that are the experts in, in that specific city or country that are um, valuable, that know everything throughout. Mm. Yeah, uh, it was interesting because last semester I was in a studio that was dealing with South Sudan. It was a, a hospital project for mm -hmm. Malacca, which was the capital of South Sudan. And there was also a lot about the resources we could use and how the architecture is there. And we did a lot of research before, and basically there was this jump from these very primal kind of almost handmade housing up until this very modern housing. And there seems to be something lost in there because the modern houses were mainly concrete structures and the old ones were all clay and really rich and very local and basically this local uh, tradition was being lost in the process of this globalization of their architecture and it was a bit difficult to work in this context of course um that's what we observe everywhere in the world vernacular architecture is is uh, has this stigma of being not modern that does not respond the needs for modern society um but slowly Steadily and slowly, um, a lot of architects and architectural companies look back at traditional um, methods um, and they try to reinterpret them or add a very modern technical component, very, very much uh, often computational skills, parametric designs to make the material use more efficient, to um, also include the local labor um, as the resource of of uh, creating or possibility to create the, the jobs as well, which is uh, incredibly important. And um, what is happening right now in this uh, fast developing cities in the global south is that it's not only the projects that are very more very generic and not in the context of that place, but also the the labor come from a different country. So in Addis Abeba, the, the for example, Chinese companies made a project and they sent Chinese laborers to work on the project. So, um, you know, there, there's a much smaller percentage of, uh, of Ethiopian laborers that can tap into this resource. Yeah, it, it's, it's all part of this. Basically, it's, it's all these different angles. It's not only about material and circular economy, it's also about the actors and who's involved and who's gaining. And we have to find a way that we are all gaining from this model, otherwise it won't help us out in any way. But we can circle back to your um, time in Singapore and the writing of your book, because I think it's very uh, closely connected to the main topic. Can you tell me a bit more about that research? Sure. So I, 
I basically used internet and uh, tried tried all this different started the, the full network of finding materials and researchers and designers. We have all of those in the in the book who are looking at the existing resources that are of no or very little value. And through different processes, different systems, they uh, reintroduce them to the market. And at that point in 2012, 2013, a lot of those, those projects were on the on even research base. So they were not available as, as a commonly or easily uh, accessible resource. Um, some of the projects stopped or did not did not pick up, but there are a few um, really great success stories, like for example, stone cycling from Netherlands. I think it was, I think it was actually. The, the whole initiative for um, Tom van Soest and um, Bad Master started while they were uh, at the university and they actually looked at all the construction and demolition waste. And they saw that 90% um, of it ends in the landfill. And they decided to try to salvage some of it. And they looked at um, mineral materials, so mostly crushed concrete and bricks. And they segregated into different colors. And with a very small machine at that point, pulver pulverized it into um, the smaller, smallest grain. And they, with that, with the, the right mixture with water and cementitious uh, adhesives, probably they uh, they were baking new um, elements. But basically, it was a, their their product was the bricks. Then it was the process in the bricks. Yes, and it still is. It still is. They are. Um, I mean, you you have to you have to have the right mentality to like something like that because every single element, every single brick is a little bit different. It's not super homogeneous. Something that you can fully trust, and and uh, you know every every single tile or brick is has perfect edges and doesn't crumble. It has a, a lot of um, you know malfunctions, but. You can also, and that's something that you have to take into consideration when you talk about circular economy and using materials that have had life already. You have to um, incorporate that into your design strategy and find aesthetic in something that is not perfect. Yeah, I feel like um, in in most of these reuse projects, that's basically a strength almost because it makes them unique and different and some people really gravitate towards those, especially if they have a, an interesting story that goes with it. For example, this this one you were talking about, or there are other examples um, like the reuse of uh, glass shards into tiles that you can use in, in building. But uh, your, your approach for this book was basically mainly focused on the architecture and the construction part of it. Yes. Um... So the book in the end is a catalog of 60 plus products from uh, 2013, 14, um, which, which only focuses on, on uh, building and construction sector. So we, we didn't take any um, uh, everyday objects that derive from waste or pieces of furniture or fabrics or decoration into consideration. We do have a few fabric-like finishing materials for the interiors, but our thought was, um, it was actually very challenging not to uh, to limit everything to the to the uh, building and construction sector. 
because in many cases, uh, you know, the approach was we have the Nespresso capsules and we can turn them into keychains. Let's put it in the book. Like, no, no, no. We, we really want to go a little bit further. We have to take a few additional steps and imagine, or at least exactly if it's not there, imagine how, um, how many additional steps would we need to take in order to actually exchange some of the harmful and commonly used materials with those alternatives. I think uh, Nespresso is actually a really fun example because uh, with all these uh, Brios products, it's, it's always uh, the question of should the in initial product even exist or should there be a different way of doing the initial For example, the, the Nespresso cup is, for me, a very wasteful way of making one, one cup of coffee, making this aluminum capsule for each and every one. I, I like Nespresso. I like Nespresso. Don't understand me wrong. Uh, it has a lot of issues, but because of, of the pressure from the users, uh, conscious mm -hmm. consumers, Uh, they are, I think they are really trying to, to change something. They, as far as I know, they have uh, the sorting machines that do detect capsules from, com from all the other municipal waste and they try to salvage it from the, from the trash. Yeah, the, I actually, the, the best thing would be to switch to just coffee grounds, right? Just grind the coffee. And as we know, the coffee grounds are actually super helpful and for, for the different plants. But um, it's definitely much better. It's not possible to have a big Italian machines everywhere, obviously. And Nespresso is uh, definitely a um, competitor when it comes to small machines. I actually have one in the office right now. Um, and um, I feel really bad about using it in States because there's nothing, there's, there's no uh, model um, where these capsules are going into through some kind of process and being reused later on. Uh, but I think in Switzerland and in Europe in general, it, it looks much better. So um, just to finish with the message once again, I'm going to repeat it. It's, it's really up to the consumers, how they approach it, how they put the pressure on producer. It's not only about coffee. It's, it, as you know, the use of plastic bags. So putting the pressure on, on big grocery shop chains, The single single package uh, in restaurants or in general packaging the products in, in in the shops, it really all makes a difference. And I you probably see that slowly, slowly it really changes. Mm -hmm. And the same is with architecture. You said um, it is a value when every house looks unique because they the materials have their story. And there was this barn that that got demolished or. Uh, was destroyed during a hurricane and then you build a shed in your or the extension of your house or a garage in your backyard and it's so amazing you can tell all, all your friends about it but not so many people actually deal with that a lot would say I would always go for super sleek uh, materials that I always have access to and don't have to worry about two missing pieces and the hole in the in the in the roof because I ran out of the materials and now I have to wait for another barn to be destroyed in order to finish my project, right? So there are pros and cons. And it's just because right now it's still on the level of cool thing to do as a, as a user. Uh, it's still not, especially in the United States, it's, there are still, still no rules and regulations which say 
I don't know, 60% of the materials used in the new buildings have to come from uh, CND, so construction and demolition. And you have to fill out those uh, requirements in order to get the permission to build. This is slowly happening in Europe, but also in very, very distinctive uh, regions. But again, there's a lot of pressure. And obviously, uh, considering what is happening with our planet and how fast and, and how strongly and how accurately we have to act, this, this has to happen rather sooner than later. So we, we talked already about the actors basically in this process. So on the one hand, you say the consumer has, the, has a big responsibility in the way he's shaping basically the processes in, in terms of how he's spending his money. And there's the other side, especially in the building sector, that, that's basically top down. It's the government giving um, you directions in which way to go. But where do we architects fit into this big picture are we more on the shaper side or are we more the consumers well obviously we are in the middle so right now um, the consumers that say we want to look at alternative materials we don't want to go to our house <laughs> and buy our materials there uh, again it's a very small group plus it's usually someone or, or a community that um, comes from kind of different awareness and different self-consciousness And uh, when it comes to education, I mean, the, our role as, as um, professors and educators is, is to put this awareness uh, into everyone's head so that there's no question about it. There's always a choice, but hopefully that, um, you know, whatever they hear over here, whatever they, they deal with, whatever they are aware of is going to positively influence their decisions whether they work in private offices or they go to big New York offices and they say, well, I only want to work with an office who is doing sustainable calculations and uh, um, only deal with or chooses the material that um, has a positive influence and impact on the economy and environment. And that happens more and more. Students close to graduation uh, very often ask, so which office should I look at? Is there an office in... In Switzerland or Netherlands or Belgium, I should be applying for because it sounds like those guys know what they are doing and we want to support them. Um, so, um, yeah, and I don't know if you want to know a little bit more about my approach in education specifically, but having, having a, a lab that specifically deals with regenerative uh, materials, looking at um, alternative innovative uh, matters that um, are usually just a few years old and still very often in, in a small research scale. That's what we try to do with our students to first of all, be fully aware of, uh, of all the layers of buildings um, uh, when it comes to environmental impact, their production and all the chemicals they have inside and what kind of um, impact it has on the users uh, while they are using the building, but also what it comes, what it ha what happens to it at the end of the uh, of its life. And I mentioned that already in the United States, um, there are I think yearly around six six hundred million tons of only construction and demolition waste that ends directly at landfill. There's really small percentage that is being salvaged and reintroduced into the cycle. Um, so it is really important to understand that if you build this wall and there's no intelligence in how it is being constructed, 
or how these different layers can be separated and then separately introduced to the right reproduction, it will end directly in the landfill. That puts a lot of pressure on us, and it should. I mean, we should be all aware that we are contributing to global warming um, and change of our environment. Uh, so this knowledge is really important. Uh, the health, health aspects are incredibly important. And then we always look at, so what do we do? What kind of other materials would be um, a good alternative to, to concrete or to bricks or, or to, uh, I don't know, we are even looking at carpets and our furniture that constantly changes as well. Um, and up to the point that uh, my students also try to produce some of the material at home with, with like very low-tech equipment. Um, and there's some fascinating results, of course, uh, again, on the very small scale, but I know that some of them are going to take these ideas and run with it. And I'm, I'm hoping that in a few years, there's going to be this incredible product out of uh, animal bone glue and, and sand that, uh, that can be used as alternative to, um, again, concrete or, or e even wood. Is, is that uh, something they're researching or is, and do you have any specific examples from your lab you want to share? Oh yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Um, there was a student and there was the time of, of Zoom and she, she was sitting in Vancouver um, joining us with, uh, through Zoom. And she said, well, I, I just went to the wet market in Vancouver and I realized there's so much animal blood uh, being thrown away or is being sold in different stages. So from, from fluid to uh, jelly, uh, in the jelly stage, uh, state up to powder. I said, I just bought a few and I started mixing it with different aggregates like sand or wood chips. And like there's, there's a binding agent missing and I don't want to use Portland cement. And then I, I remember that there's, you know, the, the animal bones uh, have natural glue. Like, why don't, you, why don't you boil the bones and see if, if you get some binding agent afterward, uh, afterwards. Then she did this incredible research on trying to very scientific with, with the right uh, measurements as much as she could, not, not on the uh, material science uh, lab level, of course, but um, already very, very mature and impressive. Um, and she came with, uh, she produced a few samples that were really excellent. And obviously on a very, very small scale, but it opens up the, the possibility, what, what, would it, what would be if, I had, I did my PhD on that and had the right resources and connected to the right people. Um, so this is one of the like, super positive uh, aspects. I mean, we are talking right now um, about the alternatives to leather, for example, and you surely have read about um, Microworks mycelium leather that is, uh, <laughs> that is, um, has been, the, the um, owner is my friend and, he postponed the lecture in my seminar. He said, I have a really big thing to announce in a week. So can we just please uh, postpone it by a week? And then he said, Hermes is using our leather to produce the luxurious goods. And it, I mean, it's right now, what, two years later, that's, that's incredible things are happening with that. But it's not only mycelium, it's, uh, um, it's fermented uh, coconut water. It's, uh, there's leather out of, uh, pineapple, actually any fibers almost could could act as the very malleable uh, leather material. Yeah. 
I, I find this, uh, I mean, obviously you're researching organic materials now. Uh, so, so you moved away basically from these reuse of like single plastics or so on, which is definitely the right approach because we should be phasing them out in the long term. And in the meantime, we should find ways to deal with them. Um, but, uh, in the end we are, we definitely want to go to towards more organic. But um, it's also always a, a question of uh, scalability, basically. Um, what what do you think uh, can be done against that? Uh, is it something you have to have in the back of your head when you research something, or is it purely the the fascination of oh, I want to see if this is feasible, like just to produce it? We always talk about scalability. Uh, it's usually in in the uh, futuristic realm where we don't necessarily prove the, the thesis, yes, I can build at least an arch or a pavilion out of it, um, but that's the goal. I mean, obviously we, we don't want to end up by just having a few, uh, a few bricks on our table say, hey, maybe one time in the future in 20 years, something can be done with it. But um, uh, there's just uh, another, um, another seminar that is coming up the second round of my mycelium um, seminar, this outcome of my first one, first round, when where we are exactly going to focus on that, trying to imagine how this incredibly fascinating um, biological matter can be scaled into um, bigger proportions and how it has to be designed, how it has to be protected from the elements, for example, how to, um, what kind of forms and structures we should look at in order to play towards the the strengths of the material and avoid the um, the weaknesses. Um, yeah, it's it's really important to test things, and I, I believe um, it's it's really important to have fun with the materials as much as possible, uh, and it's all through tryouts and failures. And at some point, you know, you come up with material that is suddenly from from this scale can be well used in this scale and then um, in, the, in the building scale. So fingers crossed, hopefully there's going to be something amazing I can show and share in two years yeah, the, or a year. The building sector is uh, known to be very conservative usually, and it takes a bit of time for, for radical changes. But um, what, what would you say if you could change one, one big thing for the building industry to make it more circular? Uh, which part would you um, attack basically? Would it be the material side or more in the process? What, what is your angle in this? I would say reducing the demolition and then uh, focus more on, more on retrofitting. Obviously, uh, from country to country, um, the buildings that do exist right now differ when it comes to material quality, age, uh, use, and so on and so forth. So, um, not every building will be, it's not going to be economically feasible to retrofit every single building with just a little bit of awareness and additional material spaces and of encapsulating what is maybe negative or, or materials that um, are toxic and that we know that are toxic and wherein um, like the, the knowledge about uh, asbestos or lead were not um, so openly um, uh, researched uh, just a, a few decades ago. Um, so definitely that trying to build less, actually. And then whenever there is something be, being built from scratch, 
making sure that the um, the um, design is much more intelligent, that the buildings are built for disassembly, for example, that there's no, every joinery is reversible, that there are no glues, no sealants, uh, but it's, it's built either in smaller modules that can be easily exchanged or which allows for easier repair or maintenance, or the whole building uh, uh, constructed is being constructed in such a way that it can be easily delaminated. And then uh, those components don't lose uh, after 20 or 30 years of use, they still have a lot of value, uh, really great properties, good quality, and um, become research for next constructions. Yeah, great. I, I'm really interested in this this as well, like seeing seeing the the city basically as the biggest resource we have right now. And uh, as soon as you see uh, um, all this talk about redensification, especially in in Europe, but like every city is supposed to become even more dense, and every last square meter has to be reused. Uh, there's a lot of demolition of um, the old towns of. Uh, European cities to make way for higher and bigger structures. And it's obviously uh, on the one hand of the material side, it's a big loss, but it's also just a big loss of identity of, of the, the places. And uh, I, I think it's very interesting that you are also, you also think that it's the, the main focus is basically to keep what we have and build on top of that. That it's not always. The, the mindset, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, we are we are talking about two different um, uh, carbons: the operational carbon and the um, embodied carbon. Um, so, operational carbon is something that uh, we can change and influence, and there's a lot of research in that direction where whatever whichever energy we use to run the buildings can be reduced we can make the buildings more energy energy efficient uh, use some low tech uh, passive systems uh, to to create the right climate for example but the embodied carbon is everything that has been all the energy that has been used um, uh, in order to produce um, produce the materiality and install it and transport it so as much as that's 11% of all the, um, all the um, carbon that is being emitted into the air, that's a huge amount. So if we, if we can tackle this one, um, like looking at the circular economy, of course, that would make a huge difference, huge impact. Where we say, well, we have uh, the, the city is our repository. We already have all these materials and we just have to uh, excavate them uh, from the buildings that are being built that do exist. Yeah. Um, to, to maybe do a big loop and circle back to the, the journey from the beginning, you, you talked a lot about your journey being a, a literal journey and the different places you lived in. Um, I'm, I'm interested in how does the context change the way we think about these kinds of issues? Like, what role does the local context play in the uh, circular economy for you? Uh, first of all, I think that if I wasn't even traveling, the um, the um, importance of circular economy in our profession would still have changed. Obviously, it it gets 
more loud and um, important in the education and um, in the construction in the industry. Um, but of course, going from, from a different government to different government, uh, from one country to another, it created a big scope of observations and a big scope of approaches to the industry and the materiality itself. Obviously, the, the move from Ethiopia to Singapore was the biggest shock. I think that if I moved from Europe to Singapore, that would be already a very big shock, where the approach to monetary value and uh, materialities, the heights and the very performative structures is completely different. It is, again, we talked about a kind of educational journey, mental journey, but also physical journey, how important it is to look and, at all these different contexts and tap into the approach of different regions towards the sustainability and circular economy specifically. And it's, but in the end, it's really not important where you are. Thanks to the, all the open resources, if, you're, if, if someone is interested and want to be well-educated and want to know what is happening, how the trends change, it's, it can be done from wherever you are. And this is a global problem. So, of course, if it should be efficient, it has to be tackled in a smaller scale by country or ideally by region. That is usually the most successful stories. But it's, again, it's a global uh, problem that affects all of us, every single human being on the planet. And it also, at the end, has to be tackled in a bigger realm, if it makes sense. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> very much. That, that was a very, very nice uh, sentence. Almost to conclude it, is there an, uh, an advice you would give me, basically, when I'm, I'm done, I'm... In half a year, I'm done studying. And then what, what would you say is the best thing for me to do? If that's your interest, uh, I think it has, it has a huge potential. And we definitely need intelligent and, and kind of powerful, motivated people in the field. Um, so being curious, attending uh, conferences, uh, connecting to people that, have, um, that are experts in the field, and then becoming one of them. And being the part of the change, of the policy change, not only so not only education, but also in um, in how we change the laws when it comes to building and building permits. Yeah, uh, definitely. So um, thank you so much for coming today to talk to me about circularity. I uh, really learned a lot, and I think you have a very fascinating story. So um, I'm very happy to have had you as a guest. Um, well, I, I really enjoyed the conversation as well. I'm really, I'm really glad that so much is happening all over the world, and uh, people reach out from different universities to to get a bit of insight what is happening at Cornell. So uh, let's stay in touch. <laughs> this concludes my talk with Marta. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you also check out the other talks. Thank you for listening and see you next time with the Circulars. This episode was hosted and produced by Frederick Schumacher. The Circulars is a production of the Media and Design Lab, based at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. For more, visit our website at ldm.epfl.ch.